Well, good morning, everyone. I think it is, uh, it's rather fitting on this Family Day weekend that we get to partner and join with a sister congregation this morning. So a welcome again to those of you that are watching from the Bridge Community Church, and a special welcome, of course, to Erica, who's with us here this morning, and also to Brandon, who joined us on video. So we're in a short three-part series on the book of Jonah. Uh, Curtis is going to finish up next week with chapter four. And I have to just say, I'm, the more I'm reading into Jonah, I'm so glad we're doing this little series because it's just reminding me of how great this book really is. Jonah is just so relatable. Stubborn, ungrateful, emotional, selfish. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, there is a playful aspect to this story, a kind of slapstick clumsiness about Jonah as he bumbles his way along, trying but always unsuccessfully to avoid God. He's just such a little snot of a prophet, isn't he? Kind of like Peter in the New Testament, who's, who's always trying to tell Jesus what he should be like. No, Jesus, you're this. No, Jesus, you're this. You open this book, and it's like the Spark Notes version of all of our lives. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and Jonah said, nope. Go, go preach to the Ninevites, God said. And Jonah goes 3,000 miles in the opposite direction. He's told to rise up, and yet all he does in the Hebrew is go down down to Joppa, down to the ship, down to the bottom of the ship, down into the sea and into the belly of a fish, down and down, further and further away from the God who called him to rise up. As Ed mentioned last week, Jonah knows who this God is, and he does not want to see this God be who this God has often shown himself to be. Jonah wants something different than what God wants. Jonah wants a different story to be told. Jonah wants Nineveh to be destroyed. You know, it reminds me, back, uh, reminds me of back in my theater days. I was invited by a friend of mine to be an assistant director for one of her shows. And there was this one actor where no matter what you said to them, they always did something else. You asked them to do this with their character, and they did that. Because that's how they felt that their character should be portrayed. That's what they felt the story, how the story needed to be told. It's like a mom telling her three-year-old to, to clean their room, and they say, okay, and then go and play on the playground. Like, that's... That's not what I told you to do. <laughs> Jonah has it in his head that God's got it all wrong. Preaching to the Ninevites is not the way this story is supposed to go. Because you're supposed to take care of us, Yahweh, God of Israel. So God does something that I was never allowed to do with my actors, but he sends Jonah to the belly of a fish. And in that belly, Jonah seemingly has a moment of repentance he recites this beautiful psalm-like verse, calling out to the Lord, feeling banished. He says, but the Lord brings me up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And so God says, okay, good enough. And then the fish vomits him up onto dry ground. But then at the start of chapter 3, which we'll read in a second, the word of the Lord has to come to Jonah a second time. As if Jonah got up, wife, wiped the fish saliva off of himself, and said, okay, I'm going to go back to Israel now. No, God had to remind him a second time. He had to be told twice that there was a task to be done. The Lord had released him from the great fish to finish what he had originally been tasked to do. See, when it comes to his own personal life, Jonah's great. Super pious, full of the scriptures, as Ed said last week. But sharing God with others who don't deserve it, and haven't put any work into it? Nah. But this time, this time around, Jonah makes no, no attempt to escape from the Lord. This time, he obeys and goes to Nineveh. 
And the fact that the opening verse here in chapter 3 is almost word for word for what was said to Jonah earlier in chapter 1 is kind of the author's way of conveying that Jonah's being offered a new beginning here. See, we have two acts in this book, chapter 1 and 2 and then 3 and 4, both beginning with the same commission. In chapter 1, God commands him to rise up and go to Nineveh, and Jonah goes down to Tarshish. Now in chapter 3, God commissions him a second time by repeating that same first command, rise up and go to Nineveh. In other words, let's try this again. And this time, Jonah rises up and obeys. He's being offered a second chance. Now at the start of Act 2, despite his earlier failure, Jonah's being offered a fresh opportunity to fulfill God's commission. So we're going to read now Jonah chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, I hope you've already turned there because we're going to start reading now. But we're going to read the, the full chapter, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're going to explore this passage in three bits this morning, super simple, simply based on the three characters, the three main sort of groupings of characters that we see here, following the progression of the narrative. So we're going to look just first at Jonah, then the Ninevites, and then the Lord. Super simple. Jonah, Ninevites, Lord. Starting at verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. All right, so to get from Joppa to Nineveh, where we're assuming that the, the fish threw up Jonah, to get from Joppa to Nineveh was about a 550-mile journey. So it was probably about a month or so by caravan to get there. So Jonah's got a lot of time to mull over his sure-to-be-profound message to the Ninevites. Now, when it says that Nineveh was a large city, the Hebrew there is literally a great city to God. So the author's implying that this place has a kind of status. It's important. And that it's possessed, not by the king of Nineveh or the king of Assyria, but of God. His sovereignty extends even over this city. That point here is already being made. So it's an important city. And when the text tells us that it took three days to travel through it, we're not talking here about a straight walk through, like how we would say it takes 45 minutes to go across downtown Vancouver. It's referring to how long for Jonah it would have taken for him to arrive, 
make all his visits to his designated preaching areas, and then depart from that town. These were all events in themselves. So Jonah would have had to make arrangements to be at all these public places in the city where he could deliver this message, you know, at the various gates, at all the temples, because they would have had lots of temples at Nineveh. And as John Walton notes, there were likely certain times of the day when giving these kinds of announcements could be made. Verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. It took a whole month for Jonah to come up with that one. It's only five words in the Hebrew. Just a little phrase. Now, it could be argued, it could be argued that Jonah is kind of summarizing the message that God gave him or being a little bit brief in his delivery. But apparently, that's all God gave him. Because if you look back at verse 2, the Lord makes it pretty clear that Jonah is to proclaim the message I give you. Go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And I bet you Jonah walked away from that interaction thinking, there's no way that that message is going to do anything. Sure, I'll go preach to the Ninevites. Hey guys, 40 more days and this whole place is going to be overthrown. Just saying. He's probably thinking that the destruction is still inevitable. You will be overthrown. In his mind, he might just simply be announcing Nineveh's fate. Because remember, again, Jonah's not a missionary or an evangelist. That's not the role of a prophet. He's simply delivering a message. A message that the Lord specifically gave him to specifically give to this specific group of people. As Kevin Youngbud puts it, Yahweh mercifully offers Jonah a second chance to submit to the commission to go to Nineveh. And outwardly, Jonah complies. But his attitude towards the mission remains fundamentally unchanged. Ah, how easy it is for us to receive mercy and yet remain fundamentally unchanged. At this point, convincing these Ninevites to reform is looking pretty unlikely. Here we have a stubborn prophet who's been given a ridiculously short message that doesn't even mention God's name or tell them what they did wrong or what they can do, and the guy who's been sent doesn't even want them to repent. But see now how much can be done with so very little. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. What? The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Quickest repentance narrative in the whole Bible. The people all believed God. Notice they don't believe Jonah. This has nothing to do with him. They believed God. They knew that this message was coming from him, from the greatest to the least, every single person, which is kind of hard for us to imagine. Because reading through Jonah, you'll, you'll notice that there's a significant shift, actually, um, in chapter 3 from speaking about Yahweh as God to simply using the term God, as if the Ninevites in this context, they don't really know who this God of Israel is. They don't know him by his personal name, which makes their immediate reaction here just a little bit absurd. They don't know or understand who this God is. But again, keep in mind that they don't necessarily convert to him as if they've had a realization and suddenly now they only believe in the God of Israel. Nineveh would have had its own pantheon of gods, like any Assyrian city. 
hundreds of them maybe. And there's a good chance that God's already been kind of tilling the soil for this message to be proclaimed. You know, the Ninevites would have had their own little divination practices. And if they would have been seeing certain things and then Jonah comes and gives this message, perhaps already God's been creating a context in which this would make sense to them. Because they're willing to listen to this God, even though they don't fully understand him. And, and they're willing to do, evidently, what this God required. Because if you, if you knew anything about Israelite religion at the time, it would be pretty obvious that this God was interested in justice and repentance from injustice. And to reform, this is where you would start, putting on sackcloth, fasting, and crying out to this God in fervent prayer. See, Assyrian and Babylonian cultures, as far as we know, didn't do the whole fasting and sackcloth thing. That was a very Israelite thing to do. And in case you're unfamiliar with it, sackcloth is this kind of coarse material made of goat's hair. It's really uncomfortable. Um, and, and that's the idea. You're meant to feel the discomfort of your, and expressing grief and humility and penitence. It was a, kind of a rejection of earthly comforts. So the fact that these Ninevites are employing these Israelite practices proves that it's the God of Israel they're appealing to here. And the king who, who is meant to stand as a sort of high priest for the people would normally be the one to declare this. But here, he's not even involved. Which solidifies the point that this movement isn't coming, again, from any human authority. It's not coming from Jonah. It's not coming from the king. The king doesn't declare it. It's only because of God's word. It's a movement from the bottom up. That's the impact of this. The whole city, young, old, rich, poor, male, female, slave, free, everyone has a change of heart. And a fast is proclaimed. They've already started without him. The message gets to the king without Jonah even being involved. He only hears of it secondhand because of the people's reactions. And immediately, verse 6, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Notice the pattern there. He gets up, takes off, puts on, sits down. He goes from sitting on his throne in his royal robes to sitting in the dust in goat's hair. The message from God is already dismantling human power structures. And the king now models himself after the people and becomes just like everyone else. This is what God's word does. Again, there's not necessarily a conversion happening here, but there's definitely moral reform. They didn't get rid of their idols or, or necessarily show any inclination of, of replacing their gods with this god, but they recognize his authority, and they change their ways. And right now, that's all that Yahweh wanted. Ironically, Jonah is the only one of everyone here, even the animals, who hasn't repented. And many scholars label Jonah as kind of a representative or a caricature of Israel, a people who, who constantly, throughout the Old Testament, fail to hear God's word, fail to obey it, and fail to reach out and be a blessing to the surrounding nations. Even Jonah, a prophet of Israel, someone who should be a spiritual giant in the community, doesn't get it. As one scholar put it, as a prophet, he should be the apex of spirituality. The prophets were the servants of the Lord. This servant, however, did everything he could to avoid fulfilling the divine command. And if Jonah 
Is this out of touch with God and God's mission? How much more is Israel? What the Ninevites are doing is what God expected of his own people. This is what Israel was supposed to do. But here the king of Nineveh shows more obedience than one of Israel's own prophets. Declaring a fast is like saying, hey team, we've fallen into a deep pit here. So we got to make some changes. we got to transform our ways. we got to turn from our violence and we need to fixate all that energy on God and repentance. And here again, this text shows us that a little obedience, just a little obedience, can go a long way because even the king of Nineveh comes to recognize something of this God's character. Verse 9, he says, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. In other words, if we turn, then perhaps God will also turn. Perhaps God will be compassionate. Perhaps God will relent and show us his mercy. They have no idea how this God's going to respond, but perhaps shows a level of hope. Like the sailors in chapter 1, they recognize that God can do whatever God wants to do, yet no matter how terrible or evil our existence has been, perhaps God will show us mercy. Because look at the effect that Jonah's pitiful message is having on this people. It's completely transforming their hearts and shifting their desires. Their wickedness was so bad that they were going to be overthrown, like Sodom and Gomorrah, poof, gone. They were at the edge of destruction. It was that bad. Yet verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The literal phrasing there is, and he did not do it. He didn't do it. God relented. He took pity. He had compassion. He turned and then they turned. They turned, or I should say, they turned and then he turned. What mercy. What unfathomable mercy. A mercy that evidently cannot be thwarted or manipulated no matter how much we try to run it, run from it or avoid it. And Jonah hates it. See, his, his deep dislike for Nineveh, his own hatred, clouds his understanding of his Lord and prevents him from being able to mirror and embody his own God's character. He had not grasped this God's mission because he did not understand. He didn't even like who this God was. Again, he acknowledged Yahweh's identity as sovereign overall. Back in chapter 1, he did that. But he's struggling here to grasp the scope of this reality. God is not just the God of Israel. He's also the God of Israel's dreaded enemies. They are not excluded, in other words, from his master plan. The goal, again, which we see in all of Scripture, is universal blessing. God wants to bless the entire created world with his presence. And the goal of blessing, this goal of blessing, is to be administered by his elect people. That was Israel's job. They were elected to be a blessing. They were chosen for a purpose. The book of Jonah then stood as a challenge to Israel, and it still stands as a challenge for God's people today. 
Israel had lost a sense of identity in the midst of their own crisis, their exile, whatever challenge they were facing. They had to be reminded of what God initially chose them to do, which as an Old Testament professor once put it, was essentially this, go and love your enemies. Jonah felt that Israel deserved better, but nonetheless, this was the mission. And the same message was given to the people of God centuries later. And so the same message is given to us today. Because Jesus put it this way. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This kind of concept did not make any sense to Jonah. Why is God so merciful? Why does he care so much about our enemies? All of Israel wanted him to stamp out their enemies, not to be good to them. They were stuck in their own pride and selfishness, not realizing that they themselves were becoming God's enemies. See, in both Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus says that the people of Nineveh will rise up. There's that language again. The people of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment and condemn that generation, most notably the Pharisees, for their failure to repent in response to his teachings. Such a minimal revelation, such a small message that was given to the Ninevites compared to what the Pharisees and others had right in front of them. The very presence of God. How much more then might be expected for we who have the Spirit of God within us? Who are our enemies? It's an important question, I think, for us to ponder. Because there is no person, nothing, in all of creation so evil, so wicked, with so horrible a past that has hurt us maybe so badly that God cannot yet demonstrate his scandalous, inclusive, all-embracing mercy and offer a second chance. He's patient. He's so ridiculously patient. He can wait a long time for it, can we? We may go thinking that someone is far from grace, but we have no idea. We have no idea how close grace may be to someone who might just be a hairline away from turning in the right direction. No one, no matter what they've done, is exempt from receiving God's mercy should they repent. Not even you. Not even me. That is the scandalous reality of God's mercy. No wonder Jonah despised it. We have a hard time with it. We think we understand it, we think we love it, but when we really consider the implications and remember how much evil exists out there, eventually it will make us a little uncomfortable. And yet regardless of how much we resist it, and maybe even hate the idea of him showing favor and mercy to people who don't deserve it, no matter how much we want to play the part of the older brother, it will not stop the generous mercy of the Father. 
In other words, our God knows how to use even our failures and our stubbornness and our selfishness and our arrogance to fulfill his purposes and to help us embrace his scandalous mercy. Because, of course, we were once God's enemies. Romans 5 verse 10, For if while we were God's enemies were reconciled to him through the death of his son, etc., we were God's enemies. We were sinners. It is precisely because we were God's enemies. We were in the place of the Ninevites. We were in that position. That mercy towards our enemies is to be our first imperative. Because when Christ submitted himself to the cross, he became the enemy of God for us. He took on what we deserved, all onto himself, paving the way for us, the true enemies of God, to receive undeserved mercy for the sake of everyone who will call on his name. As we sang earlier, with a shout he rose victorious, wrestling victory from the grave, and ascended into heaven, leading captives in his wake, now he stands before the Father, interceding for his own. From each tribe and tongue and nation, he is leading sinners home. He's the author of creation. He's the Lord of everyone. And his cry of love, his cry of mercy, rings out across the lands. Our God is the God of the whole universe, not just of Israel, not just of the church, He's the God of everyone, those of different religions, different ideologies and philosophies, different ways of being. He's the God of all of them, whether they believe in him or not. And the offering of judgment and mercy belongs to him alone. Thank God that that is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is this, our role in this story, for we who have been given a second chance, just like Jonah, our role in this story is this, Go, rise up, preach my message of mercy, be a blessing, love those who are unlovable, pray for those who make you angry, demonstrate that you serve the God of second chances. And we will see what the scandalous mercy of this God can do. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.